An interesting thing I've noticed while living in Japan is the way they set up their family grave sites. Uh, they usually set, they usually clear an area somewhere on the, their property and it's usually set up in the most uh, prime location, you know, overlooking a valley, a mountain, rivers, whatever. Something that anywhere else in the world you'd probably put a nice uh, condo, apartment, uh, restaurant, you know, with a panoramic view, beautiful. Uh, I guess it's a way to send off their ancestors, you know, give them a permanent view, a beautiful view, whatever. But uh, right now I'm sitting perched up on one of them uh it aligns the back of our property there's like one two three three of them most of them are abandoned uh it looks like the forest is trying to reclaim them uh, most of the people in this village that i live in are it's hardly anyone under 60 and a lot of these graves are becoming abandoned. But anyway, beautiful view right now. I'm looking at deep emerald greens from the mountains, kind of like, I don't know if you're familiar with Oregon or Washington, that deep emerald green from the forest. Uh, beautiful view of the river rapids flowing over the rocks the river has the same kind of emerald hue but it's crystal clear fresh covid free air nice breeze it's uh june right now so the humidity in japan hasn't really kicked in yet uh just living the dream man and uh quiet little remote mountain village in Japan. Crazy story how I got here, but uh, I'm loving every minute of it. As you can hear, <laughs> right on time. So, every morning at 6, and at noon and at 5 p.m., this air raid, will, air raid siren will go off in the background. I guess it, it's carryover from the old days, but uh, they use it to, uh, you know, at 6 a.m., wake everyone the fuck up to go out and go farming. And then I guess maybe no one wears watches around here, so they kick it off right now it's noon and then that in the evening they you know wind it up again at five so everyone could come home for dinner and uh as a person who's been in combat zones uh, afghanistan iraq etc i remember the first time i came here with my wife to visit her family and, uh, you know, if you've did any time over there, 
in in Iraq or Afghanistan and you've heard that CRAM go off, you know, incoming, 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 you know, and that air raid sirens, the first time I heard that, I'm like, oh, shit, North Koreans are coming or Chinese are coming. What the fuck's going on? You know, it it took a it it takes takes a while to get used to. Right now, I'm conditioned to hear it, but the first couple times it would go off, you know, kind of like hairs stick up on the back of your neck. So let's let's dig into uh, since this is the first uh, episode and. covered a brief intro of my background uh let's let's dig into you know how i got here like why why did i choose the professions that i chose and 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 we'll i'll give you a little background to that because that can help you see my point of view on the future podcasts and the, the guests that are going to be on etc and it's not like i'm going to f- spoon food you sp- sorry spoon feed you any bs on this is how you should do this or that you know as with anything i hope that you can learn something from my experiences take what applies to whatever happened or is or that you're currently dealing dealing with use the good throw out the bad and uh go from there so um ever since i was a little kid i've always wanted to be the hero the hero in the story either i don't know if that's from reading too many comic books or uh or, you know, watching, you know, you know, the types of movies like Star Wars and, you know, stuff like that. But uh, I've always wanted to be a hero. Never, you know, when we were playing, you know, cops and robbers as, as kids or whatever, you know, I never would play the bad guy. Always wanted to be the good guy. And, uh... I think my earliest memory comes, I don't know, it had to be maybe four or even uh, three-ish or four-ish, I don't know. Uh, The only reason I can narrow it down to that is because my mom wasn't gravid. Uh, My brothers are all four years apart. And this memory, I don't have... I don't have a image of my mom having a belly or, you know, being pregnant or whatever. But a uh, story goes like this. Uh, one night, uh, I was awakened from a dead sleep. Uh, f- screams, screams were coming from the living room, and it sounded like my mother. It was my mother. Uh, I immediately yank off my covers and I run down the hallway. And while I'm racing down the hallway, you know, I'm hearing tumbling, scuffling noises, you know, and my mom's screaming, hey, you know, let me go, let me go. Help, help. So 
burst into the living room and I see my mother hopping on one leg. My stepdad's on his back and he's tugging at my mother's leg. And she looks at me, I look at her and she's like, help, help. And I look down at him and I'm like, get off my mom. He's, he kind of smirks, sh laughs me off. And I look at her again and she appeared to be in pain. I look at him and make the decision, you know, I'm gonna take this guy out as a four-year-old. Anyway, with everything I had, a soccer kicked him right in the face. He wears glasses, glasses snapped, flew off in the distance. And my mom looks at me and says, Carlo, we're just playing. And I pause and I'm like, what? You know, I'm like, oh shit. Because my stepdad stood up. He wasn't fucking playing. He stood up, picked me up like some small package, walked to the uh, hallway. Hallway is hardwood floor. And for lack of a better description, he midget tossed me headfirst down the hallway. And I do this forward, as I hit the ground, I did this forward baseball slide until I skidded to a halt right in front of my bedroom door. He sprints, scoops me up, lifts me over his head, walks over to my bed and just slams me right on the bed. And, you know, I bounce a couple, two, couple, couple times and that was it. I was expecting more after that, but he walked out, slammed the door and that was it. And uh, it was a thing, you know, there's a saying about bravery. It's like uh, doing something dangerous or even though you're afraid, but you do it anyway. And I guess, I guess maybe I had that at a very young age. Um, I don't know. But uh, that's how it all started. And uh, there were many more incidents out of my stepdad that shaped me into the man I became. Some of them <clears throat> very traumatic. Um, but if it wasn't for those uh confrontations and incidents I had with him I wouldn't I wouldn't be where I am today it's not like I'm thanking him but uh, I used those experiences to make me a stronger person instead of a weaker person I, I don't use the physical abuse that physical and mental abuse that I had to go through from three to like 11 as a crutch 
uh, of like wanting some kind of pity party or whatever. Uh, if anything, you know, I'm thankful. Uh, it, it did make me a stronger person and, and it had helped me deal with difficult people. You know, when I was on the fire department and the police department and, you know, working as a private military contractor and, you know, other countries, high threat, dangerous places. So the good and the bad is, you know, I can I can be thankful that I used that bad situation to help me get through uh, difficult situations in life. So I guess I'll cover him and a lot of issues I had with him in some future episodes. But uh, let's let's continue on to. Uh, why I kind of gravitated to uh, this life of pursuing uh, being a hero or actually just caring more for others than my own self. So, um, as a kid, I was fascinated with the fire service um i used to jump on my little bike and would go visit all the local firehouses in the neighborhood every all the guys knew me by name uh you know i went i would have my dad take me to different firehouses in the city uh the military base that was nearby uh the airport or any time there was any kind of exhibition or demo that the fire service was giving, I always wanted to go. And I knew when I grew up that I was going to be a firefighter. I wanted to be that guy running into the building while other people were running out. I wanted to save lives. I wanted to be a hero. I wanted to be a protector. And... uh, I kept that mentality until, um, you know, my mom eventually left my stepdad, you know, because it wasn't me that he was physically abusing. It was, it was also her. And after a while, she got tired of it and moved us away. And moving from school to school, um, it was kind of, it wasn't kind of, it was difficult. You know, you're you establish a network of friends and a tight knit group. And then all of a sudden you're moving to some other area. Uh, you know, I was into sports. I was on the track team. I played American football, uh, basketball, even though on a good day right now, I'm like five, nine. Uh, but, and I wasn't, I wouldn't say that I was like a superstar athlete or some genetic freak, but, you know, I was I was never sitting on the bench, to put it that way. I was good enough. And, uh, but I started to get that teenage angst kicking in. 
and uh, I fell into the wrong kind of crowd. Uh, stopped playing sports, and it was like all about just being one of the cool kids. Started. This was back in the '80s, so I was like break dancing and stuff. So like, that's what I was doing for fun, like break dancing, and, and uh, so I was with a bunch of kids that were in this group and we're doing a lot of breakdancing events and demos and stuff like that and it wasn't cool to be in sports anymore because we were getting a lot of attention doing that stuff and uh, so being around them um, kind of lost sight of that fire department dream you know it was like now I'm being raised by a single mom I have two younger brothers and you know I was never I had no adult supervision now so I went from a really strict household where it was with the draconian rules to like now I'm raised by a single mom who's always at work or taking business trips um, and who's never there, and uh, I could skip school, you know, high school. I skip. I I probably could have stayed home for two years and many days as I skipped. Uh, it got to the point where you know I'm having house parties and you know just alcohol, underage, you know, drinking, underage sex, you know, wild parties. And uh, it was, it was like out of, I was out of control. The only, you know, the only interesting hobby or fun things that we were getting into was like drinking, fucking, fighting. That was it. I mean, there was, there was nothing else beyond that and I, I think my relationship with my mother deteriorated rapidly and it, it got to the point where she didn't didn't care you know you know I got the oh, I can't wait till you turn 18 thing you know so you can get out and I don't have to deal with you anymore so no no kid wants to hear that you know uh when, they want to hear that the parents actually care. You know, I think I was going above and beyond to be an asshole so someone would notice. Who knows? But I know that when she stopped caring, I stopped caring. And I didn't, I didn't, I didn't really think about the future. I didn't think I had a future. College wasn't a thing that I thought was in the cards because I had skipped school so much. I didn't fail, but, you know, just scraped by. Uh, but when I got out, um, when I finally got out of high school, uh, I uh, revisited that childhood dream of being a hero, you know, I thought, you know, what happened to that kid, 
what happened to that that dream you know like i was i wasn't going anywhere you know i didn't know i mean the good thing is i didn't get into drugs fortunately having a cousin who was like one of the big coke dealers in town uh witnessing how people would do anything for cocaine especially women that the 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 the, how (laughs) what they would do for that stuff i was like there's no way i want to try that stuff there's no way i want that poison in my body just seeing what these people do for it and how they would just do anything uh, humiliate themselves uh you know trade their bodies for it uh steal things whatever uh i remember at a party one of you know there were these groups group of girls hovering around my cousin pestering him pestering him pestering about wanting more wanting more coke and he had it all laid on the table you know a couple lines whatever and he just got so fed up with them pestering he just took his hand and just swiped all the coke off the table and it went on the ground or on the floor the carpet whatever and when I saw these girls peck at that carpet like hens pecking for like worms or or grain I was like there is no way I mean that was like the most disgusting demeaning thing I ever seen in my life that a human could dupe to so I was like there's no way Drugs just weren't in the cards. Any kind of drugs. I was like, coke, whatever. No, I didn't want any part of it. Drinking, underage drinking, yeah, I would do that, but not drugs. But anyway, little tangent there. Going off into trying to find that that kid, that kid that wanted to be a hero, that was brave, you know, that wanted to... uh, be that guy I uh, took a chance um, my mom at the time was dating a uh, firefighter and uh, she had mentioned that there was a uh, uh, exam coming up and he was like hey you should try out and in my mind, you know, I'd already, my self-esteem was crap, man. And in my mind, and from what I'd saw, or what I remembered from a kid, you know, firefighters were like gods, man. They were like exceptional human beings. And I didn't feel like I was an exceptional human being. I didn't think I had what it took to even consider putting my name in a hat for something like that. But um, I was like, what the hell? I'll try it. So uh, I remember, you know, taking the exam. Well, you know, taking the written, written exam and jumping through all the hoops, the psych, the physical, the agility tests and the interviews and stuff like that. And, I was, and I was, as I was going through, you know, I was just looking around. And because I was I was looking for these exceptional people, these these gods, these these 
firefighter candidates that were the, of the caliber I had in my mind. Like, I was going to be competing against these guys. And when I looked around, they just, they look like everyone else. Some of them were significantly inferior to me. And I was like, wow, how, what the hell went through this guy's mind or this, this, this person's mind that they would want to even have a chance. And there were, there were some studs in there. But uh, um, I was just I was just really shocked uh, that uh, the types of people that were going through, and it it it, uh, it boosted my confidence, and uh, I don't know how, but they hired me. And uh, I went, joined the academy, uh, busted my ass. Uh, I wanted to prove something to myself that I wasn't a piece of shit, that I was someone. And I figured that this was my last chance. I was like, if this doesn't work, fuck it, man. I'm, I'm, fucking nobody and I'm not worth I, I am what like what I thought everyone thought of me a piece of shit you know like worthless so, and I didn't want to be worthless I wanted to make that childhood dream come true so um, a lot of the guys in the academy had already had Experience either through volunteering or uh, being firefighters from another agency and they're transferring over. So um, I knew it was gonna, it wasn't gonna be easy to get that number one spot. But anyway, I gave it everything I had, and at the end of the six months, I uh, got number two. And uh, it was actually a tie. We both scored uh, on a total score. It was like we both got 93, uh, at, like combined score from average tests and evolutions throughout the six months. So we both got 93, but he had 93.9. I had 93.4. So he got number one. And I got number two. And I was a little pissed off, but I was happy I was, I made it. The coolest thing about that graduation ceremony was, uh, man, every, every uh, everyone came. My, uh, my, my real dad came, uh, my mom, my grandparents on my mom's side and my grandmother on my dad's side and uh my grandfather on my mom's side he was uh, kind of a serious guy he was a podiatrist and uh props to him for you know 
getting through med school and having his own practice as a person of color in that era. You know, props to him, man. Uh, he was also a two-war, you know, veteran. He served in World War II and the Korean War. And uh, like I said, you know, even what was going on through America, you know, with racism in the 60s, he was able to get a degree, become a doctor, have his own practice, and have a successful business. But uh, for a person like me who didn't have any positive role male models, he, he was like the only guy I had to look up to. My real dad was a piece of shit. He's weak, he's feeble. And it wasn't like, you know, how when kids talk about, oh, yeah, my dad could kick your dad's ass. I never, that never came out of my mouth. It was like, I bet you my granddad could kick your granddad's ass, you know, type of thing. But anyway, like, with this guy, there are no hugs and high fives and back slaps or a guy I love you type of thing, you know. I didn't really think, I didn't even, I was surprised he came to my graduation. I, I mean, I, I knew he didn't hate me, but I didn't think he really liked me that much. Because he, anytime I did something naughty, he would always say, oh, you're just like your dad, you're slick. And he didn't, and, and that's not a good thing. He's saying, I'm like my dad, my dad was a piece of shit. And for me, for him to say that I was like my dad was like, the most insulting thing to me it made me feel horrible because I wanted to be the total opposite of him but anyway after I got my certificate after I got the handshake from the chief chief fire chief gives me my diploma for graduation my uh, official helmet and I'm walking back and I'm getting hugs and high fives from like my friends that came and then I'm kind of going down the line you know shaking everyone's hand and I come it comes down to like my granddad's he's like one of the last guys on the line so you know I knew I wasn't gonna get anything emotional from him so I just kind of smiled and I, I said thanks granddad for coming it really really meant a lot to me and, uh, man, it's, uh, he grabbed, he grabbed me and gave me this tightest bear hug. The first hug I ever got from him. I mean, I've been on the planet, you know, 20 years at that point, And I don't remember him ever giving me a hug, but he gave me a big hug and he said he's proud of me and he said he loved me so it was like three things all at once and i'm thinking to myself motherfucker you're doing this now and i was like this is this was like too much i'm i mean that i mean i'm i'm 
getting emotional thinking about it now, but uh, it it was so such a powerful feeling to get a hug from him because I, I never had felt love before from at least my American family Italian family totally different we'll get in that later but when he gave me that hug and said he was proud of me and then he said he loved me I could feel the tears welling up and I, I was like I can't I just kept thinking I was like I can't cry in front of all these people you know I'm supposed to be a tough guy there's no way I can cry in front of these people so I, I was just fighting to hold it back hold it back hold it back and uh, I just just buried my face into like his shoulder and just and, and tried to try to dry dry my eyes because uh, you know it was such such a such a powerful feeling that I'd never felt before I'd, I'd, I'd never felt love before like that from, from him or that, that side of the family so it was like really powerful and um, it's not like like looking back you know as an adult as a provider for my family it's not like he didn't do anything yeah he was kind of hands off but I mean he paid for my Catholic school you know I mean, my mom's living in a fucking ghetto, man. You know, if I went to the schools that were in the neighborhood we lived in, I definitely wouldn't be here today. Um, but he was covering covering that cost. Uh, I mean, he would take his camping and fishing and stuff like that. And those gestures, I just... I guess I just took for granted. I think I, you know, I would have, I would have preferred more hugs and, <laughs> and hey man, I love you or I'm proud of you or like, like when he, hey, you're fucking up, you know, get your shit together. I, I would have, I, I could have needed, I could have used more of those than fishing trips, you know. But anyway, um, that that affected me a lot, and I feel like uh, as a parent, I don't hesitate to tell my kids how much I love them, how much I'm proud of them. always pay attention to what they're doing and congratulate them for their successes and their effort. So, never know how, you, you never, you never, 
know what you're missing until it's like right on your doorstep. But anyway, um, so when I get on the street on the fire department, um, I think the negative thing about coming in the top of your class, the, uh, the, the fire department I was on, Arlington County, Virginia. It's uh, right across the bridge from Washington, D.C. Very progressive, very state-of-the-art. I'd say probably one of the best fire departments in the world as far as training and resources, um, government funding, whatever. And the, and the training was unbelievable. But anyway, they had this thing, like if you graduate towards the top, of the class. If you're number one, you could pick whatever fire station you want. That was like the prize. Uh, so since I wasn't number one, I was number two. Their philosophy was the persons that are more, I guess, intelligent. I don't know if that was a good way to the persons that did the, the best should go to like a slower station so if there's a there are different parts of this fire departments have different stations around the city some are in good neighborhoods some are in bad neighborhoods some of them are in urban you know uh like high-rise uh areas and some are in residential areas and arlington is like one of the most you know, wealthy uh, counties in the United States. And uh, when I got out, they put me at the slowest, one of the slowest stations in uh, the county. And that's a huge mistake for me because I, I don't know if I have ADD or what, but I just need to be challenged constantly. I can't sit around and do nothing. I would have preferred to been at one of those busy stations where it's like back-to-back -back calls where you never see the firehouse. But unfortunately, that's where I went. And uh, I think I, it kind of, I lost a little bit of motivation because of that. I didn't uh, started to lose focus and uh, I was doing a lot of partying hanging out with friends and you know getting wasted and showing up work drunk and stuff like that showing up work late which is a no-no in the fire department. Three times and you're gone if you show up late. I remember uh, I showed up late three times in the month. And uh, I was going to, I had to see the man, you know. I uh, was told to go to the chief's office, have a little chat. 
And uh, I was like, this is it. I'm going to get fired. <laughs> what the fuck did I do, man? I made it, and now I'm going to get fired. It's like all, uh, all that negativity is coming home to roost. You know, that, that negative self-talk, that uh, not good enough and all this other stuff. Oh, man. So before I walk in the chief's office, there's a guy. He uh, kind of he's had that. He looked like a '70s porn star. Like even when he had his uniform on, he, he had a he, he his shirt would be unbuttoned a little more than it needed to be. Exposing his gold chain and hairy chest. He had the porn stash, but it was more, it came down to his uh, chin, kind of like a handlebar type. Kind of looked like a good looking Ron Jeremy, if there's such a thing. Anyway, he he says, hey, uh, when you go in there, I want you to tell them that you're an alcoholic and you need help. And I was like, man, fuck that. I was like, what are you doing up here anyway? He's like, just do what I tell you. He's like, go in there, tell them you're an alcoholic. You fucked up. uh, And that you need help. I was like, I'm not a fucking alcoholic. He's like, if you want your fucking job, you want to keep your fucking job, you better go in there and say you're a goddamn alcoholic or your fucking ass is gone. He's like, you need to listen to me. He's like, you're lucky I came up here and I'm giving you this fucking advice. He's like, I don't know what he saw in me, but uh, I took his advice. You know, I go in there, you know, there's a very serious person behind the desk. It's just me and him. He's got a file, and he's just ready to start signing and uh, probably sending me on my on my way. But uh, before he can get into his little speech or whatever that I already can tell that he has mentally prepared himself to give, because it's no easy task. The fire department's like family. You don't want to see anybody fail. You don't want to see anyone get fired. You know, you got to really fuck up before they start making these calls and these decisions to get rid of you. So anyway, I do exactly like the person said. And I was like, hey, you know what? I fucked up. I'm an alcoholic. I need some help. Um, I don't know what I was thinking. I don't know. You know, I... I I think it's just being at that slow station and not having a lot to do. It's just been really depressing for me, blah, blah, blah. And then, boom, you know, his eyes light up. And he's like, oh, man, you know, why didn't you come to me earlier? You know, we have all these resources that can help people with these problems. You know, we have an employee uh, action plan or I don't know what it's called. But uh, let's get you into that, and let's get you some help. But you know, if you, we're not gonna give you 
another chance after this if you fuck it up again. And I was like, Roger that, man. So that was a wake-up call I needed. I uh, went through the motions, went down to counseling, and basically, yeah, I sat in front of this lady, and uh, we didn't even talk about anything about anything regarding alcoholism. It just I don't know what she saw in me, but all she wanted to do was talk about relationships, like the relationships I had with my mom, the relationships I had with my partners, sexual partners, women, you know, whatever. And it was it was just I don't know how maybe once once a week I had to go in there. I don't remember how many times, but uh, the funniest thing about sitting there with her is like she had these gigantic, perfectly round tits. Now, I mean, these these tits were gigantic. They weren't fake. They were all natural. I don't know how they were poking and per- perky up like that. But this was the 80s. I don't, and she was a little overweight. But those titties were, like, out there. That being said, I swear I wasn't looking at them. But she kept... She, she had this cardigan. And she kept covering her tits now she, it wasn't like she had cleavage or anything they were just out there like just and she had a normal shirt on she kept it was like every five seconds she would take one end of the cardigan cardigan and cover one breast and then and then do this back and forth thing with her hand covering her kept covering her breast i'm like in my mind, I'm like, am I looking at her breasts? I'm trying not to look at her breasts. I am not looking. I swear I'm not looking at her tits. Why does she keep covering up her tits? I'm not looking at her fucking tits. I'm really going out of my way not to look at her tits. But that, her covering her tits every five seconds and talking about relationships is the only thing I got out of that thing. And, hey, she was a nice lady. You know, no complaints there. And, it was a, it was a good wake up call. Big uh, shout out to to the guy who uh, saved my career and gave me a second chance, Kenny Johnson. You the man. But uh, yeah, after that was over, man, I was uh, a lot more focused. I didn't fuck up anymore. Uh, I took my job seriously. Um, there was a way out of the slow station, and I took it, and that was uh, people were going around. There were, uh, during the 80s, you know, there were, there, the fire service was mostly uh, strictly fire, and the EMS part of it was uh, separate. Like the the medical calls were separate, so there was no dual responsibility. The firefighters weren't medics; medics weren't firefighters. So in the in the early '90s, there was this push to like uh, combine the services, and uh, our department wanted to make firefighter paramedics, and there was no one wanted to fucking do it. Firefighters hate doing EMS calls. 
at least back then. So uh, the incentive was like, all right, we'll pay you an extra 10 grand a year. So I was like, all right, the money is like 10 grand a year. Plus I could run, I could work in a busier firehouse. And there was potential that I could rotate on some like the rescue squad or the truck or the engine company. So that, that appealed to me more than just sitting at this slow station in so the, the nice area, you know. So I ended up doing that. I uh, went, so what they did was they sent me to uh, this community college called Nova, Nova, Northern Virginia Community College. And back then you had to get a uh, cardiac care technician uh, certificate. And uh, so, you know, I went through the, through the program, but the thing I didn't like about it, I don't know if it's because it's a stereotypical part of the bad side of, of community college is like, everyone had the answers. Like everyone was floating around the answers to the midterm, the final, et cetera. So it's like, it was a breeze, a breeze through. I got my cardiac care certificate and then now I'm to get the second part which was the paramedic level um, I had to go back but I didn't want to go back to the community college because I'm like hey I'm dealing with saving people's lives I'm, I need to know the exact medical uh, terminology I need, to, I need to know the dosage I need to know the exact the signs and symptoms for different uh, medical conditions and traumas and et cetera. And I didn't, I didn't want to make a mistake. So, you know, I asked around to, to find the best paramedic school in the area. So I could switch over and they're like, Hey, you know, if you switch over, the fire department's not going to pay for it. I was like, oh, fuck it. I'll pay for it. My, out of my own pocket and uh, so I ended up going to George Washington University through their paramedic program and uh, man a night and day it was actually a struggle to get through um, but it was challenging and I like it I like the challenge but, and I think I came out better in a better uh, position than some of the the people that had gone to the community college because the paramedic exam that you have to take when it's all over is very difficult. It's one of those exams, the written exam is like you have to find the best answer. Instead of just having like a clear cut answer, it's like they've got, you know, is, you know, there's, there'll, there'll be a picture I'm exaggerating, but there there could be a, a picture of a blue circle, and the the, the you know it, the question the question could be what what color is this blue circle? <laughs> is it is it light blue? Is it dark blue? Is it celeste? Is it cyan? Is it I don't know whatever 
you know, it, it, any of these answers are right. You just have to pick the best right one. You know, and it, it's, it was a fucking annoying thing. And uh, the practical test, too, it was, it was very, very strict. And I, I, I get it, man. You know, it's, it's people's lives that you're fucking with. But at least be clear and consistent. And, and the test was just very inconsistent. You know, they're failing people for, like, if you're, on the, if you're doing the practical test where you have a fake patient in front of you, you know, you don't really have a real person. So it's like you're playing this imaginary, you're having like a, a tea party, you know, an imaginary tea party, you know, it seems like you're, you're verbalizing everything. So if you get on a scene and there's this fake patient in front of you and you don't put your fake gloves on your hand and before you start treating the patient, you fail. So if I, for example, if I just, you know, had walked to the test station and there's my fake patient laying in front of me and I just started, they were like, okay, you have this patient this uh they have this medical emergency go handle it so if i attempt to treat this patient and i don't say oh before i touch this patient i would put on my gloves and do universal precautions you know looking out for whatever it's like boom i failed it's like oh you failed me because i'm putting on my imaginary gloves you know anyway bullshit but the good thing is the way the the test, the school that I had gone to was far superior. There were no fucking bullshit. Uh, There's no bullshit professor like writing shit on the board and then like, hey, you might want to pay attention to this and then do like two two big foot stomps. He was like, every time I do a foot stomp, you might want to take notes because that's going to be on the test. Man, I don't want to learn like that. Just. Um, but that's how it was that, that the community college that the fire department was providing us. And so when I, had, when I showed up to the test, you know, all the guys, all my colleagues, you know, that, that were kind of clowning on me for spending my own money when I could have gone to the free fire department course the fire department paid for course you know everyone's clown on on me but i'm the only one that passed well before it there everyone was talking about hey you know if you don't get it you know no one usually passes the first time and that still goes on today people will say that weak ass excuse you know the paramedic test is pretty difficult you know no one ever passes it the first time so it's okay if you have to take it two, three times, and I, I, man, I'm not in that fucking, I'm not in the two, three times fucking bullshit category, I have a plan A, and that's the plan A, there's no plan B, C, D, F, fuck that shit, I busted my ass, uh, and I was gonna pass that, and I told everyone I was gonna pass it the first time, and I did, and none of the other guys did, and they had to drive up from D.C. to Columbus. And when they failed that, they had to drive from D.C. to Philly. And, uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to do that. And the thing is, it also reflected on the street. Uh, some of these guys, 
weren't as uh, proficient on the street or it took them longer to get their groove because they they had gone to a school like that so uh, sometimes free isn't always the best thing quality training especially when it comes to dealing with someone's life outweighed some I, I would have I rather pay with my own money so I can feel confident in my skills and I'm doing the right thing so uh, boom 9-11 happens um, I was one of the first medics paramedic firefighters on the scene um, crazy day probably could devote a whole episode to that but uh, real quick uh, it was it was one of those things where uh, it was one of those life changing uh, events that knocked me off the axis of what what my personality you know I went from I think on the fire department you know I was kind of like you know happy dude always clowning around I took my job seriously you know I gave 100% but you know I play pranks on people sometimes uh, you know always telling jokes and you know keeping you know turning the party up and livening up you know it's like you can still you know, kick ass and have fun, you know, it's, you know, you don't have to be all serious and stuff, but after 9-11, it's like, after what happened there, man, boom, my God, I, uh, I'd never seen anything like that, um, the devastation, uh, the interior was like something from a horror, horror movie, like Alien versus Predator or something, you know, like, the smells, the gasoline, the flesh, the uh, the stench of that stuff. Um, and like I said, I'll 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 do an episode covering that experience. But after, I remember, you know, I was there from nine a.m. to like I worked nine a.m. to like nine ish a.m. to like. Uh, one in the morning without taking a break not even sitting down um, the good thing about arriving on the medic unit is like boom I could detach and uh, regroup with a unit that was doing entries so uh, after initially getting on and scene treating a couple military dudes pumping them with some morphine and getting them on the helicopter uh, then I was free you know, I was like, I'm going to do some entries, you know, who, who wants to go in? So I'd see an engine company going in, I'd go in with them. They'd get tired, come out, and I'd see another group going in. I'd, if I had enough air in my bottle, um, I'd go in with them, go in with the truck company. They'd come out, and then after a while, I stopped changing my bottles, started going in with just breathing regular all the shit that was in there fortunately I haven't had any uh, side effects from breathing all that you know asbestos and silica and all the other bullshit 
is in there. Um, but I just kept doing entries. So to paint a better picture on what I mean by entries, uh, if you're not familiar with the fire service on how we do things, there's uh, basically when you're on any large or a major uh, incident, uh, a unit will go in, do their firefighting or search and rescue. And after, after a certain amount of time, when it's, whoever's in charge says, hey, it's, it's time, to, time to go back outside. Uh, as soon as you come out, you have to go to rehab. And when you go to rehab, uh, it's it's uh, just a part of incident command where they check the physical, mental well-being of uh, the people who were, you know, just, just uh, did the entry, you know, to check blood pressure, uh, just basic status check to make sure everyone's legit. And, uh, you know, they hydrate them. And then once they get the all clear, they can go back in. <clears throat> so uh, since I wasn't attached to any speci specific unit, I was able to just keep going in whenever the fuck I wanted to. And I wasn't going to rehab. I was walking out, doing U-turn, going back in with the next unit. Not saying it to, you know, show how much of a badass I am or whatever. I'm just, that's just, I was on a fucking mission. It was, uh, you know, it, what it was, uh, uncanny event and uh i felt like i had the strength of 20 motherfuckers you know i had the endurance i had the strength to keep going so i kept going and um i think at 3 a.m i was doing one another entry and then uh, as i was uh walking into the building the main entrance i feel a tug on my collar i'm like you know what the fuck you know someone's tugging at my collar i turn around it's my captain and he was like hey you know your partner told has been telling me you keep doing entries and you're not going to rehab and you know he yells at me he's like get your fucking ass in rehab and get checked he's like this incident isn't going anywhere we're, we're gonna be here a while get checked out and you can jump back in in the game later and at first i was pissed man you know i was angry you know i wanted in a situation like that you just want to take take your anger out on the closest person but what he said made perfect sense. It wasn't going anywhere. And you know, I was there for the next three weeks, either you know, assisting with you know, fire ground efforts for evidence collection with the FBI. You know, at one point I was their safety officer helping helping them collect evidence and <clears throat> so on. But uh you know, I took a break. Um, so what I did with that break was, uh, you know, I, I was able to uh, calm down and see what was going on around me. And I was, before that, I was just laser focused on 
trying to find someone, rescue someone, save someone, hoping for that that person, that one hand to reach out from the rubble and you, you yank them out and you know save them. But uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. But uh, you know, I I tried to find a little quiet space so I could just think. And uh, there was a there was a medic unit that when you looked at it, it, it looked like it'd been just raided of every last bandage. <laughs> you know, those things. Every unit on the scene had been ransacked. You know, for supplies. And uh, all the doors were open. <clears throat> so I walked I walked around the medic unit and uh, closed all the doors. I went inside the back. Everything was kind of disheveled. Uh, there was a gurney. I sat down on a bench. I grabbed a sheet and uh, I balled it up. And I just buried my face in it. I tried to smother my, smother myself. I just held it to my face and just was thinking to myself, this is going to fuck me up one day. I need to get this out of my system. So I was like, I'm going to force myself to cry so I can get this out of my system and just be ready for the next one. <clears throat> So, with my head buried in that sheet, I uh, screamed as loud as I could, and I cried, forced myself, I, for, I forced those tears out, because I never, I was like, I'm going to give you this, and I don't know who I was offering those tears to, but I, I was like, telling myself, I'm going to give you this, and I'm never going to cry again over this shit. <clears throat> After that, you know, gathered my myself and uh, jumped back in the game again. Just kept going at it. I didn't go to rehab like I was told to. Just went back into the mix. <clears throat> so uh, the thing I didn't like about the whole incident was... Uh, I think the worst part for me was having to evacuate on numerous occasions where they'd sound the alarm uh, because they thought another plane was coming or a car bomb or any kind of bomb threat. So I don't know, several occasions they sounded the alarm where everyone had to evac. And, it, and in those moments, you're haunted by like, man, what if I was a couple inches, a couple feet? meter from someone that needed my help but I got sent out you know I was told to evac you know so you're haunted by the what ifs in reality if you weren't out of the pentagon I'd say 15 minutes after that thing hit you were toast literally I mean there was no there weren't any survivors after the first 15 minutes had passed so if you were still in there there was there was no that was a wrap 
but you don't think about stuff like that. You you dwell on the, the what ifs, what you could have done, and and all that. But the thing I also didn't like was the tactics that we had had on our department compared to some of the other agencies that came in. Uh, DC, uh, the Pentagon's in Arlington, and DC is just right across the bridge. Uh, so we're Arlington County was there first, which was the fire department I worked on, as I said. But DC came in a little bit later, and uh, they were really aggressive, kind of Leroy Jenkins style, just balls to the wall in there. Evac tones would go off, you know, requesting everyone to come out, and they'd stay in. Uh, they just kept staying in. You know, I talked to one guy, and he was like, if another plane was going to come, it was going to come. You know, I'm, I'm there to do a job and that, that stuck with me and I ended up tra uh, transferring over because that type of aggressive style of firefighting appealed to me and I didn't want to, you know, set up some command post and have a wait and see and let's plan this and that, I, you know, I'm more of that, like I said, the aggressive style that they had appealed to me more. So I did end up transferring over, but as a medic going as a firefighter medic, transferring to a fire department that is short of medics, all I ended up was being on a, a, a medic unit. I never got a chance to ride the squad, the truck or the engine companies there because you know, they needed, they put me where they needed me the most. And uh, it was fun, wild ride. I'll cover my time on DC in another episode. It was a crazy place, but fun. I got, a, I was, at one point I was on Medic One, which is the, the, the medical unit that covers the presidential details. And that was pretty cool. Got to see how, a lot of that Secret Service stuff works behind the scenes. But uh, anyway, um, that 9-11 incident kind of planted a seed in me to it's kind of like revenge. Like it, it had this sour feeling. I, uh, like at, at 31, I really didn't want to go in the military because I didn't, I didn't know much about it. My perception of the military was that it's kind of like they, they send you wherever they want. And, you know, if I, I wanted revenge, I didn't want to go wherever they wanted me to go. I wanted to go into the anus that the balls deep into Taliban or territory, whoever was responsible. I, I just wanted to be there without going through a lot of uh, the red tape. And uh, so there was like a company called Blackwater, private military uh, company. And they were uh, they were uh, they needed medics, 
and it 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 uh, it appealed to me, but I didn't have any weapons experience. You know, I've been a firefighter my whole life, and a paramedic. I had no law enforcement experience. I had no weapons experience other than going to range with my friends from time to time. So I decided to switch over from uh, fire to police, get some law enforcement experience, and see where that see where that took me. Now, being in a cop, being a police officer in D.C., um, man, I was a wild ride. <laughs> to this day, I've, I haven't seen a movie or a television series or any any documentary more exciting, like a police documentary or movie, whatever, more exciting than just a normal day on, on a department. Foot chases, car chases, fights, you name it, man. It was it was a wild ride. I had a blast. Now, usually, firefighters stay on the fire department, and police police officers will are more likely to lateral over to fire, not the other way around. The fire department's kind of like the mafia. Once you're in, you're in for life. But police usually will do their time and, and maybe switch over the fire because it's more more chill. Like it's more of a dad job. Perfect dad job in my opinion. But uh, the thing I liked the most about the police department compared to the fire department is like when you're on a fire department, you're on an engine company, truck company, or rescue squad, and then your your day revolves around the decisions of what the team wants to do in that one day. So, you know, what you eat, where you, what you do for training, uh, where do you got, where, where you PT and stuff. You, you got like five, six people have to come to agreement on what you have to do. Whereas on the police department, I didn't have a partner. I'm on the street on my own. I can work at my own pace, you know, which when I was on the street, it was like balls to the wall, man. Um, I'll go into, uh, more detail in a future episode, but, uh, so I got whatever experience I felt necessary or was, uh, relevant enough to try out for Blackwater. And, uh, I went down to Moyoc, which is the headquarters Moyoc in, uh, North Carolina. And uh, it's not like an academy type of uh, thing. It's like you don't you don't go to some Blackwater Academy. I think they did have some bullshit academy where you pay and they run you through this course or whatever. But I went through a vetting process when I went there. The vetting process is like once you walk in the door, what you you have to show them. Everything you put on your resume, you have to back up and all the scenarios and range time and all the bullshit they put you through before you get deployed. And uh, it was it was interesting. You know, there were um, a wide range of uh, different special forces 
former military people. Um, and uh, I thought I was way out of my league. And, but it all worked out. I, uh, I was able to, the range stuff wasn't an issue for me. Uh, the scenarios were, you know, kind of like some of the scenarios I've had in the police department. And so everything, and, and then, like I said, DC was wild. So uh, my experience there, like laddering, the transferring to the police department definitely helped me get through that process. So, uh, you know, I uh, jumped through all the hoops and got deployed. First assignment was Baghdad. And uh, interesting place, man. Uh, never would have gone there. Never had any interest to go there. But, uh, you know, it was hot <laughs> and a scary place. You know, everything is bombed out. Vehicles on the side of the road uh, destroyed, uh, buildings destroyed, people, you know, miserable, yeah. miserable people there. But, uh, the mission I was on was, uh, for the State Department, and I was assigned as a medic on a personal security detail. Um, so covered different congressional delegations coming in and out of uh, Baghdad, getting their photo ops and meeting with the uh, locals and whatnot, just keeping them safe, getting uh, these you know, congressmen and politicians and sometimes the president and vice president that would come in, secretary of state, getting them to their meetings, photo ops, like I said, at schools and mosques, etc. Um, good time. Um, for the most part, everyone there that I, all of the colleagues I work with, they were solid. Uh, some has been, some never been, but mostly uh, legit dudes. Um, I, uh, learned a lot from them, even though I remember being in the team, uh, one team meeting and like my, like my first brief that, that I had gotten and I, you know, I stood up and introduced myself and I'm like, yeah, I'm with Carlos, this is my background, blah, blah, blah. And you know, I'm here hoping to learn a lot from you guys. And, and this one guy who he's, uh, he was like the sniper on our team, and he's like, motherfucker, you're not going to learn shit from us. <laughs> he's like, sit your ass down. <laughs> it was funny. This guy's name was Cactus Jack. He looked like he, like an old R&B singer from, from the 80s, maybe. Smooth guy. Never thought he'd have a name like Cactus Jack. Everyone had different call signs, but that was his. But anyway, uh, I didn't have any, uh, I mean, close calls mostly were from incoming mortars, rockets, etc. Uh, 
there's not a single man on this planet that I fear. I'll go to toe to toe with anyone. Depends on the situation. I'm not saying I'm a badass, but I, if you bleed and I bleed, uh, I, I fear, I don't fear you. I can, it can, it can go either way, but bombs like EFPs and IEDs and mortars and rockets, holy shit, there is no standing toe to toe with that. And the times where, you know, I'm getting blasted by shrapnel from that shit. And that, that, this shit's terrifying, man. I remember uh, being at the embassy because just getting my daily workout in because, you know, if, when you're downtime for missions, you, you got to get swole, man. You got to stay in shape. Uh, I remember and all it called for all the medics to come back to the camp, man camp, that it was called. It's uh, right across the street from the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. And I remember sprinting to the camp. And it's like 4th of July, man. You know, mortars are coming in, bouncing off buildings, bouncing off the roofs. Like, you just, like, boom, exploding. And I'm like, I... man, how the fuck did I end up here? I'm, I'm, I'm running and fucking, I'm running through mortars and fucking rockets landing here and over there and shit. What the fuck am I doing? But it felt good, man. I felt like, um, you know, I'm a medic. It's my job. I need to go to the camp and help whoever needs help. And, you know, when I got there, one one guy had his head, part of his head blown off. And a couple other guys had some minor injuries to um, legs and some other shrapnel injuries, but um, I ended up treating the minor injuries because I was obviously late on the scene. The medics were already in the camp and they treated the uh, more severe guy and uh, he's still, he actually survived, which is amazing. But, uh, you know, I did that for a while, the high profile stuff with the State Department. And then I've also done, you know, work that, you know, the State Department gigs were more high profile. You want to, uh, uh, what do you call it? A, a protected compound and they have the outer ring of security. And, and then you're driving around in armored vehicles and you've, you're fully armed. You're, you've got exposed body armor with ammunition like magazines exposed and you're carrying them for a, a larger weapon like a saw which is a, just a machine gun and uh, you have like you're you you're portraying a more intimidating uh presence and i've also done the missions where it's like totally low low profile where you're just wearing man jammies or just jean and t-shirts no body armor uh, sometimes there may be an AK, you know, you have stashed and, you know, a pistol under your waist or, and, you know, and you're living with the locals, you know, amongst the locals and just kind of going to the regular grocery store, shopping in the market, you know, eating at the local places. You know, and I like that a lot better because it, 
less attention and less chances of getting hit. Smaller teams work a lot faster. That was a lot. And and having more responsibility was uh, another another thing that was that I dug. Never would have had that chance <clears throat> anywhere else in the world. You know, someone giving you a bag of money. Hey, we need weapons. We need vehicles. We need a safe house. Make it happen now. And boom, you know, you're, you know, doing a, taking a congressional delegation across Afghanistan, uh, you know, for the election, election observations, you know, just keeping them safe so they don't get snatched up while they uh, go to all the election the polling booze and get their photo ops and whatnot. But uh, anyway, I was going, uh, the, the way the deployments worked with Blackwater was uh, you, you're in country, boots on the ground for like uh, three to four months. And then to uh, avoid burnout, they tried to push you back out to your home or record or wherever the fuck you wanted to go to. And uh, you would be there, you'd go on vacation for like 30 to 40 days. So uh, for me, tax purpose wise, it was just better for me to stay out of the country. So I would just spin the globe and just pick a spot around the world on my bucket list that I always wanted to go to. I spent a lot of my vacation time visiting family in Italy, uh, going all over Europe, South America. Um, I started to get into going to Japan because it was just different. Uh, It was a place where, you know, I could decompress. You know, the, the language was unfamiliar. The written and spoken language was unfamiliar. It was a squiggly lines and gibberish so i could just walk around and zen out in the white noise because that's whatever it that's all it was it was just like walking around tokyo was just like white noise i didn't know what the fuck people were saying when i looked at the writing on the wall and the train whatever i didn't it was just fucking gibberish it was a squiggly lines and i was like my mind is fucking free i don't have to think about you know someone trying to cut my head off i don't have to think of you know, watching my back in Japan is the country where, you know, everyone avoids conflict and confrontation. So, you know, if I bump into someone, it's like they're saying sorry. Not, I don't, I'm not fucking saying sorry. They're saying sorry. I step on their toe by accident. You know, in the States, you know, <laughs> even a grandma is going to tell you to fuck off. And you cut in front of someone in line, you know. You might get knocked on the head, but over here, it's like the other person apologizes. You know? So it was very relaxing to come here. And uh, this is where I ended up meeting my wife. Because as I was coming here, I, I wanted something to take back. And I was really into ink, like tattoos. And, uh, you know, Japan, best best place in the world to get it. So... I started out with uh, a little bit of artwork and then it just got addictive, um, especially for firefighters. The firefighters love ink 
I mean, it's in our culture. I mean, ever since the Edo period where, you know, firefighters, you know, tattooing uh, battle scenes and, you know, gods as talismans, protective talismans to, you know, protect them while they go in entries and fires and stuff like that. It's just cultural for us. I mean, if you see a firefighter, you meet a firefighter and they don't have a tattoo, mm, it might be, it's a shady guy, don't trust him. <laughs> but anyway, uh, while I was getting some tattoos here, yeah, I met my wife here and, uh, um, After I met her, I started just solely doing my vacation deployments here or like having her meet me in another country, and, you know, after I would deploy and, and, uh, we ended up hitting it off, got married, another wild ride. And, uh, you know, I got the ultimatum thing where it was like, I had to choose, um, continuing to be overseas which you know four months out of the at a time is is uh, according to her wasn't fair and you know i agree yeah but it was tough it was tough to give up something that that i loved you know i loved being over there it was fun it was it was exciting and uh but I knew it wasn't something I could do forever. I mean, it was just a matter of time before the way I was operating over there and my role as a medic, um, I was consistently getting pulled on some of the more dangerous types of missions because every mission it needs to have a medic it needs to have like a a, 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 t a team leader a medic sometimes a canine sometimes a sniper but most details especially on remote details you need a medic and you know sometimes there are a lot of medics kicking back in the camp playing xbox all day and, you know, I'd be like, damn, this guy's getting paid as much as me, but I keep getting requested to go on these missions, man. But it, it was kind of an honor because I didn't have, I wasn't a special forces medic. I wasn't a ranger medic. I wasn't a SEAL medic. You know, I was just a city medic in, a, in D.C., you know. Granted, yeah, there were tons of drive-bys and shootings, and, you know, I got, I actually had more experience treating gunshot wounds in D.C. than I had in Iraq and Afghanistan combined, so that should tell you something about D.C. But anyway, I ended up uh, quitting and starting my own security company just so I could be at home more. And uh, it felt like I was actually away more because it was like I, I ended up doing uh, close protection for like CEOs, bullshit celebrities and whatever. So it was a lot more international travel um, last minute travel, 
and for a lot of lack of a better word, I would say the executive protection slash bodyguarding industry is as close as you could get to, at least in my mind, what the house Negro was on a plantation. Just being available 24-7 at anyone's whim and essentially being someone's property, you know, like a Ferrari or like a watch that someone can point at and flash. Yeah, that's my security over there. That's my uh, protection agent over there, you know. That wasn't as rewarding as the missions that I had gone on in the Middle East and in Africa, some Latin America countries. Uh, so I quickly got burnt out with that. I hated it. I wanted to quit so many times over. But, you know, you got to put food on the table and all that. Um, eventually, in another episode, I'll cover why I shut it down. But, uh, I ended up shutting it down. Uh, we, uh, my wife and I moved the family to uh, Japan. She went back into uh, working for a hedge fund in finance again. And uh, I was just like the stay at home dad taking the kids to. Uh, baseball and soccer practice and stuff in school and whatnot. Um, from time to time, I would do some uh, protection gigs here and there, you know, word of mouth. You know, if, you, if you've got a good rep, you've got a good rep. Um, there's a saying, you're only good as your last gunfight type of thing. But so far, I've still been able to maintain a solid reputation through my established network and colleagues. And uh, that's like, that's all it that matters to me, man. It's just to be a solid dude, to always be that solid dude. Like if some someone mentions your name, you know, up in conversation, you're like, yeah, I know Carlo, he's a solid guy, you know. If you need this or need that, yeah, he can handle it. And that's always been, you know, a, uh, like a badge of pride, I guess, um, that people still look at me like that, you know, come to me for advice or uh, consider me for different missions. Even now, I'm some old geezer, 51 now. But uh, I've got a few more missions, a few more gigs that I'm working on. Uh, I'm probably going to hang it up soon. It's still a young man's game. I wanted to kind of fade off in the distance as an instructor somewhere, but I'm in Japan now. There's nothing over here. Uh, But with anything it's like there's there's never an end of mission there's never an end of watch i mean you just got to find a new mission a new 
new why and uh, a new reason, a new purpose. And my purpose has just been just being a good dad, just being a dad. My my dad wasn't giving my kids the opportunities that I didn't have. Um, just being a good role model. So uh, there's going to be a lot in the future episodes that I'm going to cover. Uh, like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, cover my experiences with my stepdad and uh, we'll go off into uh, 9-11, my experiences on the fire department, the police department with Blackwater. Got a lot of stories with them. A lot of war stories, just with friends, even the traveling, just traveling the world, conquering all these places on the globe with some of my work colleagues, some interesting stories and lessons there as well. But uh, I'm going to end it here. Um, Hopefully uh, you continue to uh, follow along. Hope my voice isn't so monotone. Uh, it puts you to sleep, <laughs> but uh, I'm going to end it here and uh, look forward to uh, talking to you some more. Out.